Namaste. My name is Paul Tioto, joined here with Michael Henry. Most yoga teacher trainings are becoming watered down and mediocre. So we have created this podcast to help supplement those of you who graduated from a teacher training and don't feel confident going out into the real world. Michael and I are lucky to have been trained by some amazing people. We've gone out into the world ourselves and had success, and we want you to feel confident to protect your students and to build your career with integrity and authenticity. Welcome to our podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Yoga Teacher Evolution podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Michael Henry, and today we have a special guest who's been on the podcast before, Mr. Byron Marseille. Byron, how are you? I am excellent. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, we've had a few requests to have you back on the show, so I'm excited to have you here. And today we're actually not 100% sure what we're going to be talking about, to be honest. We, uh, we had about a 40-minute conversation before this talking about different ideas, and then we just decided, you know what, we're just going to throw on the recording and just see how it goes. So we talked, in, talked think, in about a lot of different things, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Byron. Oh, I just think, I think we, you know, do such a good job of just having conversations in real life. We thought, why not just press record and see where it goes? Yeah, very Joe Rogan style, you know? I figured we could give it a shot. <laughs> but we did talk a little bit about um, styles of yoga, particularly. Um, we focused a little bit on Ashtanga and just, at least for me, and maybe you can help me understand this a little bit more, but uh, as a relatively new yoga teacher um, and very fairly new to yoga as well, like two, three years or so, and then probably wasn't very consistent, um, not really knowing a lot about lineages and then doing a training in power yoga and the vinyasa. And then being introduced to people who practice Ashtanga, I started to feel certain, um, I don't want to use the word judgments, but like, I just felt like it was a little bit challenging to have conversations with them with regards to yoga. Cause it seemed like there was a lot of linear thinking with regards to certain poses and the way to do things. And it didn't seem as open as, um, maybe other conversations that I've had with other people. So yeah, I'm not really sure how I feel about Ashtanga and maybe I have a, a, this like sour taste in my mouth as a result of it. And I kind of want to get rid of it. Um, I kind of want to be a little bit more open-minded to it and maybe, you know, um, be able to bring something to those conversations where I can be more curious and less, uh, we'll say judgmental, even though I don't want to use that word. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe you can educate me. Maybe you can teach me as well as the, the listeners that are uh, tuning in a little bit about your feelings on this matter, or if there's anything that you can reflect to me. Well, yeah, I think, first of all, for the listeners who aren't, aren't familiar with Ashtanga yoga, Ashtanga yoga just tends to be a more structured practice that, that like you could use the word is more rigid. It's not changing from day to day. Yes, there's levels that you, um, you basically kind of unlock in your body and as you do that you do more of the sequence but ashtanga is a structured six-day um, regimented practice and um, it can definitely generate and confront uh, feelings of of being boxed in um, and from somebody who didn't start their yoga journey with ashtanga yoga it might seem like it's promoting some of the opposite things that, that 
you fell in yoga, uh, in love with yoga in the first place about, if that makes sense. <laughs> but before, before, so that defines Ashtanga yoga, but I think it's important to say the reason we went into this conversation before this podcast was starting to be recorded was because we were talking about dogmatic versus non-dogmatic approaches when it comes to self-development um, as a human or even as a yogi. And that's where this Ashtanga came in because it seems to, it seems to be affecting a lot of um, people's perception. And, and I think people are missing each other a little bit on what, what yoga is defined as. So what is yoga defined as? Well, that's a, that's that's a, a big question, one, right? Michael. <laughs> well, y- yoga means yoke and it means one and then all that stuff. <laughs> well, I've always heard there's as many definitions of yoga as there are yogis. And that, that's something Krishnamacharya um, actually said all the time. And this is really cool because just last week I was recording yoga classes in the home of Brian Kess up in Ojai. So it was really cool to go to my mentor's house, record for his online platform, poweryoga.com. And in this studio, he has a picture of Krishnamacharya hanging there. And I remember from a conversation with Mark Quitwell, um, part uh, author of um, Heart of Yoga and direct disciple, you could say, of Krishnamacharya, or at least good friends with his son, um, so anyways, Mark Whitwell gave this, pic- this picture, this painting of Krishnamacharya to Brian Kess as a gift. And upon reminiscing about it just last week, that w- those were Brian's words, actually. He's reminding me that there's 7,000 different ways to do a yoga pose. You know, there's not just one way. And, and these are the teachings of Krishnamacharya who, it's really important to know who this guy is because for some reason he's gotten a little bit lost in the branching off of yoga that he was responsible for bringing to the West, right? You had Patabi Joyce with Ashtanga, you had BKS Iyengar with, uh, with Iyengar's method, both very physical practices. And from that, you know, you have a vinyasa yoga practice as well, which is essentially Ashtanga yoga in a creative uh, sequence. So anyways, the masculine feminine, the Krishnamacharya, the breath, the inhale, the exhale, all of these Hatha yoga principles kind of got muddled a little bit over the passing down of generations and teachers. And now we're at the point where not a lot of people know who that is, even is. So yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done on the part of me, you, and anybody else who is kind of feels the way that we're, you know, that we're describing um, to, to open up the conversation, to educate people that are just now getting into yoga, like yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, and I know a little bit about Krishna Macharya, but maybe I'm probably not the only one that's listening to you. So maybe we can kind of, in a brief little synopsis, wrap up uh, not wrap up, but put together a bit of a, a persona of who this person is um, and how he plays in this entire role, which is very large <laughs> as far as I understand. 
he he's just the the man responsible for directly teaching those men who came over to America basically and spread their lineages right even though they were direct disciples I call them of Krishnamacharya um, they learned from him directly only certain things carried over right as they developed their style when you say they um, you're talking about Pataji. I'm talking about yeah I'm talking about the Ashtanga specifically the whole thing actually branched from Krishnamacharya however it was not created by Krishnamacharya it was created by Patabi Joyce and also by a young man. Now, he was 22 or 23 years old when he developed Ashtanga. And it was for young men, young boys, 12 and 13 years old, as a discipline to sit still, to be able to sit still after a strong, um, almost a, a aerobic or athletic take on yoga. Then the young boys could sit there and meditate. But I, I think what, what we really need to remember here is each one of us are like a little seed that started yoga somewhere and for me for instance it's not like I knew who Krishnamacharya is it's not like you're required to know these things when you step into any yoga studio and that's fine sometimes you don't even need to know a whole lot about something before you get into it it might even create expectations if that happens so however you fall in love with yoga, you know, I think that's relevant to the journey. And, and hopefully somebody who's listening to this is thinking, oh, this podcast is part of my journey now, where I have no idea what these guys are talking about. Um, but just know there's, there's a lot of background and a lot of stories that as any story gets a bit warped when it's passed down through person to person and generations, it just isn't how it was originally. And that's the story of yoga right now, especially with marketing, especially with the mannequins you see outside of the stores these days. <laughs> Everyone wants to buy the, the hot aloe yoga thing, the Lululemon thing, you know, we're just being propagandized. I'm not sure that's the word, but it's, completely being sold at this point to to have a true experience with yoga it takes more effort now i believe that maybe 20 years ago it could have been a little easier to find an authentic experience and then who knows maybe 40 years ago it would have been harder to find anything right so that's how quickly and rapidly yoga has been spreading in this side of the world. Yeah, it, may, it makes me think of something that Paul and I always say, or we, I think it's in the description of this podcast, actually, that uh, to some degree, uh, and we used it in reference to, to yoga, is that when something becomes popular, especially in the Western world, it eventually gets watered down. It gets, we'll say abused almost. It, becomes, it starts to become more business. It starts to become more market. It starts to become like, how can this be leveraged in ways um, and as a result, more people are jumping into it, which is great. Some with not always the best intentions or some people, maybe they just haven't been taught or they weren't taught in a way that would be um, as beneficial to the, the practice of the industry or the art. Um, and then over time, it just like, like I was saying, it kind of gets watered down a little bit. And then it's harder to, like you said, have that deeper experience of, 
you know, going to India and studying in at an ashram for however long and really getting that deep experience, which obviously they can't do in a Western world. You kind of have to do a, you know, what, whatever you got, but then it just being kind of diluted traveling across, you know, the other side of the world, the pond. And then it's kind of like that purple monkey dishwasher where it's like, you say something in one person's ear and then they'll repeat and they'll only take so much of what they heard and then they'll repeat it to the next person. And then it just keeps going and going until eventually things start to become less concentrated in what it originally was. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's, it becomes further and further from what its original thought was for it to be. But at the same time, it's always great to have things progress and change, right? Because the world's always changing. Um, and sometimes even things like yoga, which is, you know, it started when it started and it's probably important for things in yoga to change and progress as well. So I think there's room for that conversation with progression of yoga and kind of incorporating. And, and that's why I really like conversations about East West kind of yoga. Cause it's like incorporating, there's a lot of benefits of maintaining its additional, its uh, traditional um, practices, but there's also benefits to incorporating some of the Western style perspective practices as well. So long as one is not, um, absolute or one isn't like the norm or become more of the the concentrated focus because i think that's kind of like that yin and the yang you want to have a little bit of both and you want to have a nice balance between the two the percentage is not really relevant it's more so just how do they work with each other to be able to create this this cool little art system that can also live in a western world and also provide you know major impact to people's lives or Mm. yeah it's just it's just a fantastic art piece that that can easily be uh, watered down. I feel just like anything when it becomes popular. Yeah. Well, I believe we're, we're in one regard, we are meeting people where they're at. And that is something that is almost completely necessary to spread a message. You have to meet somebody where they are. And in America, we're in a, in a and I say America, you know, with South America, North America, the whole West, um, a lot of people are not in a place to receive um, maybe in the way that an Indian man might teach. So I understand a certain amount is necessary to communicate with a mind that has gone through a completely different uh, environment, growing and maturing in a different environment. Um, That being said, I notice a very huge difference after teaching so long and traveling high and low, the mindset of a, of a Europe, of a Western mindset is obsessed with the mind more. So the mind is an obsessive thing. You know, Joe Dispenza is really hot right now and he's talking about the mind. Um, these, these lessons of the cognitive, the functions, the brain waves and how to get, it's all very interesting to the to the western mind it's not those things are not very interesting to the eastern mind right those things are not important doesn't matter what's happening in this microscopic level to them as much it's more about real simple right give receive love do unto others you know it's pretty simple to them it's more energetic or heart i like to always say heart because that is the primary organ that's governing all things some might say the kidneys but i'll say the heart and 
And I believe that there's an opening that happens in the mind. They're definitely connected, definitely connected to the heart or the body. But that body element is very apparent when you, when you travel the world and you especially teach yoga. And the people who want to understand everything mentally and they want to just understand it, which is different than experiencing and knowing something. Right? Knowing something because you've experienced it as opposed to just reading and needing to understand without an actual experience taking place. So yeah, just that came up in my mind and I thought, I better share that. <laughs> yeah, it's in, well, it's interesting because it's hard to say from my experience, but I guess like I used to be in my head a lot when I wasn't practicing yoga, when I wasn't traveling a lot, I was just kind of like, that's all I knew, right? And I think that... I don't know if this is true, but I'm just going to share it anyway. But I just feel like the Western world is very much a, a, a in your head type of society where you're always thinking and you're always, you know, it's always theoretical and it's always like, you know, whatever's going on in your mind. And usually there's whatever, what, what also is going on in your mind is some sort of emotional like conversation. <clears throat> so that can always, it, it's almost like everything's limited up there to some degree. And intuition is something that's fairly... I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's not a, it's not a dominant conversation often, um, especially in, you know, let's just say corporate or um, more um, developed areas of the Western world. You know, that stuff's kind of like woo woo, kind of spiritual, whatever, whatever. I mean, even something as simple as intuition, it's like, you know, let's, let's get some facts. Let's get some science. Let's get some, you know, if we, if it doesn't make sense in my brain, if it doesn't make sense, if my ego can't make sense of it, then I don't want to hear about it type of thing. Um, at least that's kind of how I felt, I think at some point. And then being a very science person, like I studied every science and math that exists probably. And my brain works that way, but it was so relieving to like, let go of that. Whenever I, um, started to basically become a yoga teacher. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, without actually having done my 200 hour training, like I was practicing yoga in a lot of ways without even knowing it. And not just the physical asana, I'm talking like, you know, doing my work, you know, working on myself, reflecting on how I was feeling, working on my emotional intelligence and like all of those things, which is basically all part of yoga. And mm -hmm. the more that I did that, the more I let go of all of this, like need for proof, need for science, need for, you know, it needs to make sense in my brain. A lot of times I'd just be like, okay, cool. You know, I'll accept that and that works and that makes it feel good for me and I'll, I'll ride that wave. Uh, but, you know, that, that, that sentence sometimes could make people a little bit irked because they're like, well, if it doesn't make sense and there's no proof behind it, then like, why would I follow it? You know, and, yeah. and that's that, very and that's, rigid. That's, that's exactly where that happens, right? That's where that seems to stunt the growth is because the mind wants to, to understand or know something that cannot be known without experience. Um, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but then I started to think about the seed planting thing. And when I was a little seedling on my spiritual journey, this is a very American um, kind of path. If you're, I believe if some of you, there's no prerequisites to listen to this podcast. So, so maybe this is something that'll hit you as familiar, or maybe this will be new for you. But when you're going down a path of, I guess, spirituality, we'll call it, um, a very common American way to do that is to start to realize that your thoughts are not connected to, they're not you, 
basically. Your thoughts are not, they're an extension of you, but they're not you. Um, and maybe some of you, the listeners will have been familiar with Abraham Hicks, Jerry and Esther Hicks, to give credit to the two humans who claim to channel the collective consciousness of Abraham, which is all about positive thinking or law of attraction in the sense of what do you want in this world and how do you get it? And trying to cut through the superficial means that maybe a mind might think, oh, I want lots of money or something. They really have a down to a science. It doesn't take a genius to know that if you replace negative thoughts with positive thoughts, then you'll probably feel better more often and more probably be more likely to attract a positive outcome <laughs> rather than an undesirable one. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Now, maybe how to do that is the expertise that, you know, I don't want to bypass. You guys should listen to, to Abraham Hicks if you haven't. Um, that's, you'll learn a lot more than I just said. Um, but that, that's very intriguing for an American mind because it makes sense. I oh. I can practice that pretty easily. Just driving my car in traffic, I can switch my, my thought into a good feeling thought, something that makes my body feel good. My whole being vibrates with joy. Ooh, I like that. You can practice that anywhere. But my experience has drawn me towards, I went way through that. You know, I went through phases of astrology or, um, just trying to understand God more like, you know, this, this experience that we're in. And eventually it kind of led me into a place of, of really not needing to know as much anymore. It's, it's more of a trust thing and the, and more information doesn't equal happier or more peaceful. Um, and, and that took, that took some years because I thought I had perfected the law of attraction. I manifested quite the life that I intended to. Um, and a whole lot of random things that I never expected to manifest were coming in as well, which I was like, wow, this must be because I didn't dial it in exactly right. But like I was attracting stuff, but that wasn't like enough. You know, for me, life needed to take a, a more peaceful turn where it wasn't about acquiring things. In fact, acquiring something might even induce stress. So I, I began a little more of a Sadhguru, uh, Sadhguru path. And Sadhguru is an Indian man who I imagine sits under a tree for centuries at a time, joking, of course, but he just has a way to hold space and penetrate, not to tell you, how to do anything exactly right but he'll he'll say things that just they they basically they, guru guru means um the dis, dispeller of darkness the dispeller of darkness that's all guru really is right it's the darkness and the lightness goo and ru and you're exposing it so you're having people some people aren't they're not ready for a guru yet because they're, they're, they question too many things and there are no answers, right? So a guru will, will basically say something that has you be like, ding, like, whoa, that's, I can't figure that out right now. That's, I'm gonna have to think about that one for a while. And that's kind of what guru is. I know it's a bad word these days, 
Um, but anyways, I just wanted to point the point out that transition from Western self-help mentality, right, to actual practice and surrender into a more peaceful state. And also one last thing I'll say is that something I really hit me the other day that I, I came across was that happiness, we're not looking for happiness. Essentially, we're looking for peace. A lot of people call it happiness. They think it's happiness. But happiness is peace in motion. Happiness is peace in motion. And peace is happiness at rest. Peace is happiness at rest. So I just think that's an interesting thing. Maybe you guys can use that for your new mantra. I really like that actually. Um, Cause a lot of times, and I use this language when it comes to having conversations with my partner, with friends that I can tell need a little peace in their life. Um, usually it's involves kind of creating some space to allow some of the suffering that's going on to just be released. And I think the more that I've done my own inner work and the more yoga will say that I practice, not necessarily the asana, but the more yoga that I practice uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, the more that I have an awareness of being able to see when other people might be in a state of suffering or might not see what I see type of thing. And by no means is it my, you know, my job or my responsibility to be able to tell people what to do and like give them advice. It's more so just like, I see that this person is struggling or like maybe they're a difficult person, you know, maybe they're, they're challenging and, and they're, they're very one-minded linear thinking or something like this. And they're not super open-minded. And to me, I'm feeling judgment. I'm feeling frustration with this person. And I'm just like, you know what, this person has this belief system or has this way of thinking for whatever reason, you know, could go back to their childhood and all that stuff, but, or it's just like, okay, they're, they're, they're suffering. There's something here that's stopping them from being able to see more expansively. So for me, it's more, okay, like, how can I help them? Like, what can I do in this moment? You know, like, it's not my responsibility, but what can I do? Maybe it's just listening. Maybe I just need to sit here and listen and maybe just listening and being in the state and allowing them to like, you know, share whatever it is that they want to share. will will purge maybe just a little bit to find them a little bit closer to peace, you know, just a little bit more for them to feel like, Hey, that person listened to me and they didn't argue with me. Whereas they're probably used to, especially if they're generally difficult or they generally evoke some frustration with other people that they're used to having some, some blowback with certain conversations around certain topics. So, and while I felt that urge to do so, because my ego might come out, usually it's to me, I'm like seeing like, okay, like how can I help this person with a little bit of peace? It's almost like accepting what they're saying without trying to fight with them and just say like, I hear you. Like, yeah, I can see that. Or like, you know, thanks for sharing your perspective or whatever. Like it doesn't need to be like me versus you or like here, this is what I would say, or this is my advice. It's not about that. It's to me, it's like, okay, this person, in my perspective, this person seems to be suffering in some sort of way and it's holding on tightly to this particular thing. And the only thing that I can do is be a good listener and provide them maybe a little bit of peace in this moment. And maybe it won't last very long. Maybe it'll just be enough for me to be able to create the space for them to share. You know, they say, yeah, great conversation or thanks for listening or whatever. And then we part ways and that five to 10, 15 seconds, maybe a couple minutes of peace that they get. I'm like, cool. 
I'm glad that I can help. Mm -hmm. And then I move on. Right. But, uh, yeah, so yeah. that's, 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 I saw you writing some things down there, but ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just, I didn't want to forget a couple of things. And then, um, and then I started thinking as I was listening to you speak, or it was reminding me of teaching yoga in the studios in person, um, throughout the years. And as a young teacher and, you know, and then, and then kind of a popular teacher that develops a little bit of an ego sometimes and you want to control the room. And, and now whatever I am now being just a little bit older, a little wiser, a little more experienced, a little bit uh, just giving less fucks, if we can say that here. And, <laughs> and I think that just happens a little bit in your older age, you start to relinquish some of that um, need to protect yourself ultimately and that's one of the things that I wrote down was protect as we want to give this peace to our students for 15 seconds or for the rest of their lives whatever it is there is a necessary amount of understanding that we need to have within our our own field of energy that we don't compromise for the people that are not ready, the people that are not ready, they're not expansive yet. They're not in the state of mind to receive what you have that day. It might be just be that day, it might be that hour, you know, a phone conversation, something could have rattled them. It might be for years. You really don't know. Um, I do tend to gravitate towards those people just for a minute because I want to assess out what's holding them back as you mentioned so there's a stoppage a blockage and, and they're not there to figure that blockage out right but they could happen it could totally happen um but it's not your job to figure it out so there's ways of kind of a disciplined approach um you can either bend for them a little bit like depending on how their energy is for you or you can set rules for this person and if they're distracting you in class, for instance, don't let that happen. Um, you go over to them, like almost realizing this is a high risk person for your room and you don't want that. You, you're going to weed this person out or they're going to oblige and have a life changing experience because of it. Um, that, that comes to mind, but there's more than that kind of way where somebody could have friction or you could sense friction. Um, but that friction may just be silence. It may be a non-receptivity, a lack of an ability in that moment to be able to pay attention to you. And that feels confronting to your ego because you're good at what you do, right? You're a teacher. <laughs> These other people like it, you should like it. Eat that peanut butter sandwich, you know? But they're not in the mood for a peanut butter sandwich that day. So what I wrote down was family, right? Why is it that when we go to our families, most of us, and we try to have these big and true intentions of pure love coming with them with a new, new idea, a different approach. And for some reason, our family is the least receptive. And you're quickly reminded every time you do this with your family, how, how maybe you're not, you know, whatever it confronts, you know, like you're not quite the teacher that you want to be yet, or, you know, it confronts you on a lot of levels. Have I really not changed? Can they not see this? Or they don't want to change. It's again, it's the same thing as your students in the class, right? We just happen to have some closer, you know, feelings directly to our family more often. Um, but 
I just think it's important to know, like, we're all protecting ourselves, right? That's, that's what everything is. I, and I don't say everything, but like 95% of, of people that seem like they're not paying attention to you or their body language or anything that I do right now, even as I talk, like there's some, some form of, I'm protecting myself even, even by speaking at a specific cadence and you know, not being careful with my words a little bit, knowing I'm being recorded, I'm protecting myself. And these people that are protecting themselves, you don't know what it's from, right? When you go, when you open up the Pandora's box of shit that you've been, you've swept under the rug for many years, it, it could be explosive to the point where it's really scary for people. They don't wanna have this experience in front of people and they don't wanna have it by themselves either. And there can be a time when that shifts and changes. And ultimately, like, that's why I love this work. You know, it's, it's cool to teach people yoga who are, you know, even keeled, have a, have a pretty, you know, consistent way about them. But man, it's really rewarding to teach somebody yoga. And they come, they come back to you like a few months later, like, yeah, I hated you. I hated your class. I, I don't, but, but now I love it. I'm in love with yoga. How'd you do that? You know, and that, that happens. Some of the most meaningful interactions over the years are people that did not like my class or me. So something about it, maybe the way I handled myself, led them to come back to my class. And then all it takes is commitment at that point, right? They just find a routine. They need 20 classes. Who knows what the magic number is? And then boom, something shifts and they're, they're ready for more. And now they listen to you because you've built trust. They're, they don't feel the need to protect themselves from you as much. Um, and I don't know if I said this to you last time, but the role of, and stop me if I did, but the role of yoga teacher student on an underlying uh, way, relationship way, it's, it's like you're teaching, if you're a man, especially, the students are looking at you like, one of a few things, father, brother, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, abuser, um, minister, you know, anybody that could have been a man in their life that made an impression, whether it was traumatic or wonderful. So I think that's really also helps me find peace with not attaching like my ego as much with feeling like somebody is like not listening to me or something like, no, they, they're not listening to their dad because they had a terrible relationship with their dad. And I'm representing the dad right now as a teacher. I'm not offended by that, you know? So just a little, a little tip on, on what's helped me through the years. That's interesting. That's really interesting, actually. Um, and you, you, you used a lot of mail, obviously, because you're talking about yourself, but that could apply for, women as well because there are obviously a lot of female yoga teachers and probably Absolutely. a lot of listeners on this podcast that are female as well um so yeah that's an that's an interesting perspective and the thing that came up for me when you were sharing um a lot basically everything you said um there was two things the first one i don't remember but the second one was about basically creating a chat like you're challenging someone's usual being usual way and you know for that 
usually people don't like being challenged, so they don't like you. Someone challenges them, they don't like that. They, they push back against it. You know, even for me as, as a, a young person, my dad was a very, he was very strict. Um, and I was afraid of him until I was like 19 years old. Um, he's not even, you know, I'm six foot three, he's like five, eight, you know what I mean? And I was, I've been six foot three since I was like 13 years old. So I've always been bigger than him, but I've always been so scared of him. He just had this presence about him. Um, and he'd always challenge me. And I just, I didn't like him basically until I was like 20. And then he started to loosen up and become more of my friend than my father. Um, but I love him obviously. And I respect him. And like, I see why he challenged me. I see why he made me do these things or like challenged me to do these things or whatever. This is a different perspective, obviously, than just like in a yoga teacher and a, and a yoga student, but I'm talking about more so the element of, of challenge and how people don't like being challenged. Um, but eventually that comes around to recognizing, not, I shouldn't say eventually, sometimes it comes around to seeing that that challenge, there's a reason why that challenge happened. And sometimes people walk through the door of that challenge and then they see beyond what they originally saw within their box, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and then now they might have a little bit more of an expansive view. Maybe they have a little bit more of a different perspective. And while originally it's like, I want nothing to do with that. And it's hard and it's rigid to be able to like accept or just be heard, uh, allow what that perspective is to be heard in your body. Um, there's, there's a possibility of eventual expansion with being challenged and, um, yeah. And being unattached on whether or not it works. So I, I kind of like that approach of just like, you know, if there is someone in your class or just in your life that there's a little bit of room for a challenge or not to be put in their place, but to basically level out maybe the, the environment of the room. So if it's the yoga class, let's make sure that this doesn't disrupt the rest of the class. So I'm going to like challenge them to do something different or be a little bit different. Um, if it goes well and they're like, okay, cool. Then that might translate into some expansiveness in their life, or they might just be like, fuck this, I'm out. And then they just leave the class and it's like, okay, cool. Fair enough. You know what I mean? I did what I could and I did it for the, the collective. I did it for the environment, but they might, you know, maybe they'll never see that challenge as a, as a benefit or who knows, maybe in two years or a couple months or a couple weeks or mm-hmm. who knows as an adult, as a, as an older person, they might be, they might think of that moment and be like, actually that really changed my life or that really made me think for a while, but it took me a while to let go of it or to move into it or to see that perspective. Um, so yeah, go ahead, Byron. I was going to say on that note, you should be stoked that that person left your class because you are a stepping stone for whatever the next experience for them was. And potentially, potentially this person, you don't know, you just don't know. They might be a yoga teacher one day and you were a stepping stone for them to not like. It reminds me of like people say, don't give money to homeless people or you know, I lived in LA for a long time and you can become very numb to the homeless people there. There's 66,000, I think right now. It's insane. I know. Um, and so like you're bombarded and then you can't give a dollar to everybody. Right. So, but sometimes they kind of hit, hit you and you, you know, in a way that you feel is genuine and you're like, I'm going to give this person money. But the thing I'm getting at is that people will say, oh, I don't like to give them money because they're going to go buy alcohol with it or drugs. And all I can think of when people say that is how I see a little number over each homeless person 
and I don't really see the number, but like they have a, there's a designated number, maybe it's a hundred, a thousand, five, whatever. And yes, maybe they will go buy something that is not something you wanted to be bought with 150 times it might happen, but then 151 times and they do buy something good. They do change their life. And so were you not, even if you were the first, fifth, 60th and 85th dollar you gave this person and he bought alcohol or drugs with it, did you not help this person get to that 156th time? So yeah, I think about that often and it's similar with yoga. And if somebody walks out of your class, did you not help them on their journey to find the next class that will resonate with them? So, so yeah, wow. I kind of interrupted you there. No, that's good. I really love that perspective and that share because I feel <laughs> conflicted often when it comes to um, people who are begging for money or asking for money, particularly in the Western world. Uh, I was, and I, I don't think I ever gave anything um, because I had this dialogue basically that you shared in my head. Um, mm -hmm. And then here in Bali, there's people, um, mostly there's mothers with their children that are, are begging and they usually send their kids to, to, to ask for money and stuff like that. And I'm super conflicted as well because I had this belief about you know, homeless people buying booze and alcohol and all that stuff. And I'm just like, I don't really know what to do. You know what I mean? So I just don't do anything. I basically mm -hmm. freeze and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to ignore and walk away. And then <laughs> it'll be out of my brain anymore, you know, which is like me protecting myself of being uncomfortable with the, the situation. So that perspective is really, really helpful because it's, it's not about me controlling what they do with it, as opposed to it just being, you know, a, a small milestone on the journey that they'll, they'll take. And you know, if, if we were to be able to like give the person money, walk them to the grocery store, give them food, watch them eat it, like, you know, to kind of control the whole sequence of what we would like them to do, because we know, or we think we know is best for them. Then we're trying to control something that we can't control because it's not, if, unless it comes from them, then we're just, it's not going to stick. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah. And it, it go back to the, the yoga class, and challenging somebody that doesn't feel like, you know, that being whatever, like uh, cooperative, they're not part of the community at that moment, they're doing something to resist. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's important. That's the reason I will do that to people is because I, I have benefited in my life from going into challenging moments, right? So I think that's pretty consensual. Most of us understand that challenges make us stronger, but I took it to another level at some point where I was just like, huh, I have two options. Which one's the challenging one? Boom, that's what I'm taking. Right? It was almost like a resistance to the easy way. Like, let's just see how much I can grow and I'll just choose the hard way every time for the most part, you know, depending on what it is, of course, circumstantial. Um, yeah, one example is I love cold water now. I used to hate cold water and I just, I love it. Take freezing cold showers, you can't give me water cold enough. Um, <laughs> that's like my daily practice where I do something that's challenging, you know, but even if it's, you know, a more challenging, um, it could be anything, honestly, I could go on and on about that. But it helps me in my classes because I realize that if I challenge somebody, even though it's almost like a, 
feels like an authority situation and you could get some resistance from that big time. Like when you were saying, you know, confront that person in a way that's quiet. Well, you're actually risking big time blow up as well from that person. Um, this happens to people who resist authority and they see you as authority. So you have to be really careful or prepared for a blow up. I'm willing to risk it for those blow ups because I still value where I am in life and how I got here. I credit partly to my willingness to go into challenges and be like, you know what? I'm going to do this challenge. And I'm not sure with the result of that exactly. I feel more courageous. I definitely feel more prepared for tough times. Um, and I will say my, my reactions are very, I don't react to little shit anymore. It doesn't, you know, I could literally drop this computer on the ground and break right now. The only reason I'd really be upset is because I cut off this interview. I, I wouldn't actually be upset otherwise. I would just be like, hmm, learning lesson, chalk it up. I just, I'd already be on the, the phone with Apple, like, hey, <laughs> need to bring my computer in. <laughs> um, didn't used to be like that. It's not like I was born like that, you know? So first you have to realize what you're reacting to, if it's helpful or hurtful, right? And if it's under hurtful, you have to figure out a way to, to not react so much. And I see this as very simple for myself, but I remember it as being very difficult when I think about it. And this is the struggle I see with a lot of humans in class and just the human experience in general. Um, they, they, they haven't fight, quite figured out this reaction thing, like how everything's so important for some reason, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, it's learned. I think it's learned. Yeah behavior, the reaction, um, particularly in the Western world, because of, I would say probably TV and movies, exaggerated emotional outbursts, expressiveness, reactions, which is very entertaining um, as a source to watch a show or whatever. But at the same time, we're learning, especially if we grow up watching a lot of these things, we're learning how to become human or how to be human or different ways or we'll pull things from it. And I think of the example of Friends, the, the TV series Friends, which was a fantastic TV series, right? But they, in my, like having watched that later as an adult and have, having done a little bit of work, I'm just like, these are the worst friends. Like these are the worst people. Like they're terrible people. They, they're dishonest with each other. They lie. They, they hide things from each other. You know, they, they're just not good friends to each other. So it's very ironic but at the same time, you know, they all come back and it's a great entertaining, you know, show and whatever. But at the same time, it's like all of those, these little nuances of behaviors that they have and they treat towards people being reactive and like, you know, all the time, it's, it's something that we learn, I find, and something that I had to try to unlearn. And some people probably have a very challenging time unlearning that because that's all they know is reactive, right? As opposed to being responsive. So allowing a little bit of time. And to me, and, and I'll basically speak to that is to me, the difference between reactive and responsive is just a little bit of time. Because if you react, usually you're, it's quick, boom, this happened. This is how I feel. This is what's coming out. Response is like taking a moment, just kind of like you did with the example of the, the laptop. Like you, you basically saw the laptop go down, your eyes went towards the ground. You said, huh, 
okay, so now I'm going to go do this. Like it was a short amount of time, but it was enough time for you to be able to respond instead of react. Whereas if it went down, you could have just been like, ah, you know, damn it, my laptop. And then all of a sudden it's just like a spiral of emotional reaction. So some people, they require a lot of time in between a reaction versus a response, um, depending on how deep these triggers might be of whatever it is or what, whatever learned behavior it might be. But uh, to me, that's the big difference between the two. And it's just funny to give ourselves a little bit of like forgiveness that a lot of this have learned this without us even really knowing through movies, TV shows, our surroundings, our parents, our friends, who knows, right? It's basically part of society to some degree, which is why it's over. Baby's crying. Baby's crying. It's so oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Right? Look at me. I'm reacting to this moment of sadness. Come pick me up. Ah! Right. Right. <laughs> it's so true. But I agree. Yeah. It, does, it definitely blossoms out into basically our culture, mm -hmm. TV and movies and things like that. Um, Which is why yoga is so love important. That. We get to explore all this stuff. I love that. Respond, react. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it, what, what, what is very interesting about this is that someone that I like using the example of breaking something because it happens, it's an accident and you feel bad because maybe there's value behind that thing you broke. So let's say you, I don't know, drop something somewhat value, breakable glass and it breaks and someone's around you. You may react strongly to that. But what if you're by yourself? and something breaks. How do you react then, right? And that's, that's what I find more truly our, like our vibrational set point where we live. Um, some of the other stuff we do for acting and for attention and stuff like that. And there's a need for that. And that's a personality thing and there's nothing wrong with it. But if you're getting upset by yourself, all the time <laughs> for little mishaps that you don't plan on happening. There needs to be a deep reflection into that. I believe. Mm, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's leave it at that. Um, we didn't know where we were going, but I think we went to a good place with this podcast. <laughs> we talked about a lot of things. <laughs> yes. Um, Next time let's make sure to talk. Um, I want to talk about yoga and props mm. and and I think we had a couple more things that I, we didn't get to, but I know we've, yeah. we've gone a while. So yeah, we got a lot of topics that we can do. And Byron's actually going to be coming to Bali soon ish. Um, so he'll be in the same area as me. So we'll, we'll be in the same room and we'll probably do more episodes together. Um, because yeah, we're all kind of part of the same team here and Paul as well. So it's a, it's a nice little cohesive unit that we got going on to have these conversations to talk about these things and share what our perspective is. And you guys can take it or leave it, of course. Um, but that's basically what we're doing for you. So thank you for listening. And final note is that as some of you already know, Paul Byron and I are hosting a going pro four week mentorship program for yoga teachers who don't feel quite ready to teach yoga in the real world through the Asana practice, or it could even be through some of this language that we're speaking to just with regards to, um, you know, setting, creating space, opening and closing type of the, the environment for yoga teachers. Um, it, it goes in more depth than just the yoga sauna, but ultimately the idea is that we help you get ready to teach yoga in the real world in whatever capacity that may be for you and finding your own, your own unique, um, expressiveness of what that is. 
finding your confidence in being able to do that. So that's what this mentorship program is all about. There's tons of different content ideas and how we kind of do that. But at the end of the day, if that's what you're looking for, then this mentorship is going to really help you out. So if you're interested, you can reach out to any of us personally through Instagram, or if you want to go check out more details, you can go to yttmasterclass.com and everything is there. Um, but that's basically it. Byron, did you want to sign off with anything in particular or are you feeling pretty good? Just, just uh, follow me at Byron Yoga on Instagram. And uh, if you have any questions for the next time I'm on, it'd be great to hear from you if you have any specific topics that you'd like for us to cover. Um, and then one last thing, the mentorship is essentially this mentorship is it's like all the juicy parts of real world teaching that a 200 hour training gives you. And then with a lot of personal guidance from myself and Paul, um, as far as how to teach. And then Michael, you know, he's the anatomy guru. So we, we get to bring that in as well. And that's all I wanted to say. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks Byron for jumping on again. I'm excited to have more conversations as I'm sure our listeners are as well. So thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Have a beautiful, beautiful day.